Welcome to Shanlin on Batman. Rarely do dreams come true, but tonight is one of those one of those weird life experiences that only happens once, you know, once in a lifetime. Tonight, my adulthood and my childhood intersect. And when we started Shanlin on Batman years ago, I had always dreamed about getting someone on the podcast who was involved in the movie that brought me to the character of Batman. And that is what happened. That is what is happening tonight. Tonight we get the man who wrote the screenplay for the blockbuster film, Batman starring Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson, Billy D Williams, Kim Basinger. Like this movie was my childhood. And tonight, you know, I finally get the opportunity to talk about talk with someone who played an integral role in Batman and his name is Sam Hamm. He cracked the code for the script and he brought Batman back to his dark mysterioso roots. And, you know, like I said, this is a once in a lifetime thing. And I'm so very happy and so very pleased that we get to talk even for a little bit about his role in in this amazing film. You know, a couple years ago, I had a dream to go see this movie on the big screen. I know this is first, first world problems, but I really wanted to go see that film on the big screen, and I was able to finally do that. And, you know, and a couple of weeks ago, I really wanted to get someone who was involved in, in, in the project. And tonight, we get to do that. We get to talk with Sam Hamm. He wrote the first draft to the movie he you know helped crack the code of what is a batman that we know and i'm really looking forward to you listening to it because you you'll hear me you know hear my nervousness at the beginning and you, you'll get to hear a lot of good stuff from him so we just want to thank sam for coming onto the podcast tonight we want to welcome Sam Ham onto the podcast. Thank you so much, Sam, for, for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us on the show. Um, for you, let me let's start this out. Uh, for you as a writer, did you find it hard, or were you worried about overcoming the campy reputation that Batman had endured from the '60s version of the character? Uh, truthfully, no. I mean, you know, I was. I was a huge fan of the TV show when I was a kid, you know, and so were so were all the other kids on my block. And, you know, I remember we uh, we uh, there was a great shockwave that went through the entire uh, community of kids who used to play together when uh, Batman got a nomination for an Emmy for best comedy. We were all like, what? Batman a comedy. <laughs> and so, you know, most of the camp elements went right over our heads when we were when we were watching it as kids. But um you know, when I when I came to the writing of the movie, um, it wasn't so much that we were trying to answer the uh, silliness and the campiness of the TV show. 
which which always seemed to me very much in line with the silliness and the campiness of the Batman comics uh, of the of the early '60s, because you know that was a, a period when you had you had Batmite, you had uh, Batwoman, you had Ace the Bat Hound. And, you know, every other issue, um, Batman and Robin were, were being, uh, were fighting, you know, pink aliens and time traveling Vikings and all this kind of, I mean, it was, it was a, an era when the Batman writers were pretty much out of plots and, um, you know, the characters were always being transformed into you know, something else. It was, it was it just, the, the comics were goofy. Let's put it that way. And I think <laughs> one of the reasons, one of the reasons that the TV show has always been problematic for Batman fans is because it's too close to where the comics were in the early 60s. Um, it, it really is a reflection of just how kind of silly and goofy and, and childish those comics were. And since then, of course, you know, Batman has become darker. The entire comics industry has become darker. It's aimed at, you know, for, for years, it wasn't really so much aimed at adults, but aimed at an older adolescent than the comics that I started reading. Um, you know, I had a my, the first issue of Batman that I ever had, which my uncle bought for me in a grocery store, uh, was, I think, number Detective Comics number 133, which was Batwoman's publicity agent. And it shows Batmite riding on the back of Bathound, holding a big photo of Batwoman. And Batman and Robin are, are basically concerned that uh, Batwoman is getting better publicity than they are. And so, you know, that's that's my initial <laughs> impression of, of Batman. And by the time I came around to doing the movie, um, both Tim Burton and I were sort of trying to figure out, OK, um, we don't want to do the Batman who is in those comic books, but we want to do a version of Batman that an adult could think was cool. You know, we wanted to, to figure out if there was some way to extract the cool factor that we always felt about Batman, even when the character was doing silly stuff in the comics, even when the character was being sort of mocked on the TV show and get back to saying, well, no, no, this character is cool and dark and scary and all of this kind of stuff. Can we put that over for an adult audience? And so, you know, that was sort of what we started out trying to do. I mean, we wanted to go back to the dark roots of the character, you know, which uh, you know, is the thing that everybody says all the time. But we, we actually did want to do that. And if you go back and you look at the, uh, the earliest Batman stories, I mean, he's, he's obviously he's kind of a vigilante. He's car he carries a gun. Mm -hmm. uh, in, the, uh, in the early stories, the uh, depiction of crime uh, is much more sordid you know, than it was later on when I first read the comics in the early 60s. Um, and the uh, villains tended to be a little more grotesque in the manner of Chester Gould's Dick Tracy. You know, uh, he was he was famous for his uh, deformed villains, you know, like, uh, 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 who's the guy with the mushy face? I forget what his name is. But, um, you know, a lot of the a lot of the Batman villains, including the Joker, um, including obviously, you know, Two Face and characters like that, were sort of were very much in the Chester Gould mode, and um, you know, I found I found that kind of kind of exciting, and that's sort of the um, tone that we tried to take in the movie. We wanted the stakes to be real, and we wanted to the other the other kind of radical thing we did was we didn't we didn't say you know 
how would you present this comics character and his daring do and his, you know, flashy action that he does and all of this kind of stuff like that, as much as say, what would it be like if an actual human being tried to do this? You know, what if you had a guy who decided that he was going to undertake this program, that he was going to he was going to dress up in a scary outfit, go out and try and clear the streets of petty criminals? What would his life be like? What kind of problems would he run into? Um, how would it affect him personally in his just just in his day to day existence? You know, how would his habits have to change? And we started thinking about all, all of this stuff, not from the point of view of like, how do you embody a comic book character, but how do you put an actual human being into that suit? What happens to him? And um, so, you know, that's 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 basically what we try to do. You know, it, and the, the funny thing about it was, you know, when you when you think about it, there have been vigilantes in the past there have been mobs in the past but there's never been a superhero and so then we started thinking about you know what is the kind of world that you would have to put him in what is the kind of world that would sustain a superhero and that's when we began thinking about you know this uh, kind of berserk metropolis of gotham city um which we also started to you know imagine from the ground up i don't know if that answers your question or not but yeah, that answers it for sure, for sure. Um, where was your first entree into the character of Batman? Now, you said that you, you've you got uh, uh, Detective 133. Was that your first uh, interaction with the character of Batman, or was it the 60s TV show? Oh, I, no, I was a comic book reader way before the TV show. I was I was very excited when I saw in I saw in TV Guide one week that there was a new show coming on called Batman. And I went like, holy cow, Batman, this that can't be the Batman. You know, it's got to be some other Batman. Is this like Batman from the comics? And you know, I was, you know, totally geeked up by that point. I was I was a, an avid reader of, you know, all the DC comics. And, and when they started coming out, all the Marvel comics, too. Um, and. It's, you know, I, I have to say the, the the Marvel comics had kind of pulled me away from DC by 1966 because they were they were funnier and they were hipper. And, you know, as, as I was saying a, a, a couple of minutes ago, they seemed in some ways to take place in the real world. You know, one of the things that I always remembered from when I was a kid, uh, there was an issue of Fantastic Four, I probably around number eight, I'm guessing, where... <laughs> <laughs> their headquarters in the Baxter building gets repossessed because they haven't been able to make the rent because Reed has blown all their money in the stock market. And, and I, was, I was reading this, I was reading this and going like, oh my gosh, you know, superheroes have to pay rent on their headquarters. This is like, oh, and he put all their money in the stock. This is horrible. How are they going to pay for all their giant machines and stuff like that? And it was just, it was such a radical notion that you could plop superheroes down into real world situations and <laughs> you know give them problems like you know swear spider-man gonna get the money for aunt may's medicine you know oh my god and it um really really sort of you know changed my perspective on all the stuff that that i was reading um and so you know that that also was part of the part of the influence that uh, went into the, the the way that i approached writing the character anyway so how, so how did you first get involved in tackling the screenplay? Uh, did, was it like Tim that came and approached you about the idea or how, how did this all come to fruition? Oh man, that's, that's a long story. Um, I had an overall deal at Warner brothers 
because I, I had written a, I'd written a comedy screenplay called uh, Pulitzer Prize, and it got into a slight bidding war. Um, Warner's was one of the companies that wanted to do it. I think and Sally Field was attached to it for four days. And, you know, she had just won the Oscar for Places in the Heart. And so suddenly all these people wanted to bid on my screenplay. And then she dropped out. And, you know, suddenly I, I, I wasn't going to get a big deal like I was expecting to get. But there were two studios that stayed in that, that both wanted to get it. And one of them was Columbia, which eventually got the project. And the other one was Warner Brothers. And so my my agent uh, ingeniously figured out that he could uh, parlay the uh, war, you know Warner's lost out on this on this particular project when he said, hey, how would you guys like to do an overall deal with Sam and get his next screenplay? And so they gave me they gave me basically a housekeeping deal and said, you know, come and write you know, two screenplays to be named later um, for us. And I did that. And um, one day I was uh, visiting my uh, favorite executive, my sponsor at Warner Brothers, whose name was Bonnie Lee. And she was great. I mean, she was just she had been my uh, uh, supporter from the the very beginning, and uh, I was sitting around. She was in some other meeting that had run long, and I saw up on her shelf back in the good old days when they used to have physical shelves full of physical screenplays. You know, they, she probably had three hundred scripts up on the shelf, and uh, Fourteen or fifteen of them were drafts of this thing called Batman, and I went like, "Oh my gosh, they've got Batman here! Look at that!" And so I was sitting there. I just went up and pulled one down and started looking at it. And I went through, and I was about thirty pages in, and I just, I just was thinking as I read it, you know, this is not the way to tell the story of Batman. It was a, it was a Tom Mankiewicz script, and you know, he had worked on um, Superman as well as the James Bond pictures. And it was very much it was structurally it was it was pretty much the same story as Superman. You know, except it was, you know, obviously you didn't have a planet blowing up at the beginning, but you had, you know, the kid and here's the trauma that happens to him. And then he sort of, you know, gradually decides to become a superhero and he goes to criminology school and he, you know, this, that and the other. And he puts on a suit one day and I thought, man, all that shit is pretty boring. Um <laughs> You know, I, I, I don't want to. And I, I have to admit, you know, and one thing I was one thing I was really scared of was you've, you've seen this scene done, you know, probably a million times now where they decide to put on the suit. And it's almost always treated now as parody. You know, it's like you, you, you try on the suit and it's just it's just such a ridiculously outrageous moment where you have, to, you have to sort of present it as a joke to make it play. And I did not want to do the scene where Bruce Wayne decides, hey, you know, this would actually be easier if I were to dress myself up as a bat with a big cape, you know, and all, and, and all this kind of stuff. And so I immediately started thinking, well, you know, why don't we just start with Batman as a fait accompli? And the mystery of the story is not how he came to be because you know you know with superman obviously you have to explain why does this guy fly where did he get his x-ray vision and his you know super breath and all his other powers and all that kind of stuff how can this guy do that well he's a guy from another planet you know he came here from an exploding world and that's you know that's all that's very dramatic and that's that's a good opening for a movie but with batman it seemed to me 
that the mystery was not how he does this stuff, but why he does this stuff. And so in, in talking with Tim, I mean, we both sort of agreed it was weird that you've got this incredibly rich guy. And the only thing that he wants to do is dress up and go out and uh, kick criminal ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, why does why does he want to do that? You know, why doesn't he want to do what other millionaires do? And, you know, if he wants to help people, he can start a charitable foundation. If he wants right. to, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever he wants to do, he's got the means to do it. And yet the one thing that really sort of captures his imagination is going out on the streets and, you know, getting into fights. Um, and so, you know, that that for us became the the key to telling the story. You know, we knew that everybody would kind of know going in that Batman is Bruce Wayne. We decided to keep those two characters as separate as we could. Um, the thing that we were always scared of that we got away with was that there's only about six minutes of Batman in the first hour of the movie, um, which um, we were we were very lucky. None of the executives at Warner Brothers noticed that until we were about to go into production. <laughs> Because they would have said, we need more Batman for sport here. But, you know, it didn't, didn't, didn't turn out to be a problem. So we got lucky there. Um, yeah. So the writing process for you when you're developing, because Batman and Bruce Wayne, they're a complicated character. What is the writing process like for you? Do you already have like a story idea in mind or are you bringing in comics and looking through, like, man, I want to really hone on this, you know, Neil Adams comic, or I really want to hone on, hone in on this Frank Miller issue or something. Is that are you bringing those in, or do you, when you're writing the draft, the, your first draft, did you already kind of have, you know, collaborating with Tim? Did you already have sort of an idea of where you wanted to take this character? Well, the thing, the thing I wanted to do. The thing that I proposed to Tim when I first came in on this this meeting, and I I, I didn't actually, I, I realize now that you asked me that question. I didn't answer your previous question. Oh, that's but okay. It, I took um, I, 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 it took me about six months. You know, I, I kissed every ass and I crawled on my belly in front of every executive I could find, uh, trying to get onto Batman, mm-hmm. because you know I had I had the idea that I sort of knew how I wanted to do this thing, and and I thought I could I thought I could write a good script, but I was you know I was relatively unproven punk kid screenwriter and you know warner's had warner's had no reason to give me the job and uh you know i eventually met tim and talked with him a little bit not about this project per se about other stuff we we got along quite well and you know i knew that he was attached to direct this and so uh one day bonnie lee uh told me as i was about to leave the studio uh that tim had asked me to come by um, before I left a lot, cause he had some question that he wanted to ask me. I said, Oh sure. No problem. Went by his office and he said, Hey, would you have any interest in working on this Batman thing? And I went like, finally, I can stop. I can stop begging everybody on this stinking lot to let me take a crack at, at Batman. I said, yeah, sure. I'd love to do, I'd love to do Batman. And he, he was, he was he was trying to he was trying to figure out how do you approach Batman's origin. Um, get on the assumption that we would start with Batman's origin. I said, I tell you what, okay, here's here's what I would do. Instead of doing Batman's origin, there's already Batman. We've already got Batman. He's this you know he's basically this sort of urban legend. 
who's been popping up and the criminal underworld has heard about him, but he hasn't like broken all the way to the general public yet. And so we don't really start with the origin of Batman. We start with the origin of the Joker. And he said, yeah, all right, I can see that. And, so, and then in the course of the story, we go back and we find out how this guy that we've, we, number one, we, we make Bruce and Batman dovetail. We treat them as discrete characters. It's a big tease because everybody knows that the two of them are really the same, but you know, we withhold the big reveal as long as, as long as we can and just do it. You know, we do it from a viewpoint character who's trying to figure out who is Batman, who is Bruce Wayne and discovers that they're the same character. And that viewpoint character is, is Vicki Vale, obviously, who is the, um, uh, the reporter, uh, who comes to Gotham city and, it winds up basically falling in love with uh, both of his identities. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, again, you know, I mean, she was she was the character who was Batman's main squeeze, I guess you would say, uh, when I was reading the comics as a kid. And so, you know, she's she's the one who was kind of locked in my head as the female lead of the story. And the Joker was an obvious, you know, I mean do a Batman first first Batman story is going to be the Joker. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, there, there, you know, there's, there's no other, there's no other choice. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's what the, the, the basic idea was. We, um, sort of just jump into the middle of the adventure and work in the whole sort of origin story and the psychological underpinnings of why you become Batman and all that kind of stuff as you go. So it seems like the, from the very beginning, Joker was a very vital part of the story. Did you make any changes to how it was written in the script after Jack Nicholson was cast as the character? Um, no, I didn't. I was I was not on the script by the time Jack Nicholson was actually cast. Um, okay. There was yeah, there was a writer's strike in the spring of 1988 before the movie was filmed, and so the production wound up going over to London. And uh, Jack Nicholson was actually cast in the part during the strike. Um, so, you know, what there were there were there were changes made, obviously, when the, the major change was, a you know, more of a plot change than a character change, where it turns out that the Joker has killed Batman's parents. And, mm-hmm. you know, that does that does not come from me. Um, and, you know, I, I I have I have problems with it um, in a lot of ways. I think it I think it changed the story around and, and sort of deformed the structure of, uh, the story that, that I had originally put together. Um, but you know, uh, it, it seemed to work well enough. You can't, can't argue with success and the picture did reasonably well. So yeah. uh, <laughs> just a bit. <laughs> so when you heard that Nicholson was cast, was he, was he always the, the, the actor that you had envisioned to take on the role as the Joker, or did you, were you thinking uh, when you were talking with Tim, you know, were you thinking like, maybe we get this guy, maybe that guy was Jack for you always the like, if we can, if we can do the Joker, we gotta have Nicholson. Well, we, we did a lot of, you know, that we did a lot of this guy. We did a lot of that guy. Um, I'll, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, the studio thought from day one that Jack Nicholson was the ideal we had we we actually got from Bob Kane. We got a little uh, black and white photo 
of Jack Nicholson from the end of The Shining. And he had doctored it. He'd painted over it. He'd painted a white face on Nicholson and green hair and all of this kind of stuff like that. And, you know, so uh, there was, you know, a, a, a obviously a strong desire to have Jack Nicholson. But to tell you the truth, Tim and I thought, we're never going to get Jack Nicholson. Like, come <laughs> on, Jack Nicholson playing the Joker in our comic book movie. Like, no, this would never happen. And so yeah, I would I would occasionally, you know, if I was sitting around reading a scene to myself, I would kind of do it in a Jack Nicholson voice to see how it sounded. But, you know, we never we never we never thought we were going to get him. And yeah, just it was, um, you know, I, obviously a, a lucky break that we did because it gave the movie not just a huge amount of buzz, but a huge amount of adult credibility. If you know what I, you know, if you have Jack Nicholson, who was one of the biggest stars in the world, um, putting his imprimatur on your, on your project, um, people will, will take it more seriously than they would otherwise. So. Absolutely. So they, t- they take it super seriously and then, Michael Keaton's cast, then the whole backlash happens with that. Um, well, yeah, I mean, was it Michael Keaton? Uh, and and what happened is it just it's simply a matter of fan expectations. They heard Michael Keaton, they think like, oh yeah, Beetlejuice, uh, Mr. Mom, uh, all of that kind of stuff, and they think, oh, of course it's going to be a comedy. It's going to be like the TV series. And shoot, you know, we were hoping for the new Dark Batman because this is the era of the Dark Knight Returns and so forth and so on. And, uh, they, you know, everywhere you go on Melrose Avenue at that point, you'd be seeing, you know, somebody, somebody, some goth kid, you know, wearing a black T-shirt with the Bat logo on it. And um, people just assumed because it was Michael Keaton that, you know, we're, we were going to be doing playing, playing the character for laughs. And, of course, that was never the case. It was never the idea. And, I, you know, I thought Keaton did a great, great job. I mean, I thought he really brought so much weight. You know, he, anchors, he anchors the movie. I mean, I think he's got real emotional weight. And, you know, one of the first things that he said when he was talking about doing the movie was, um, you know, it seems to me that Batman, it seems to me like this guy is kind of depressed. And we went like, yeah. He's, 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 he's working out some issues. And so, you know, he was, he was very much attuned to the whole sort of, he, he understood, he understood that Bruce Wayne was a weird cat. Let's put it that way. Uh huh. So, so like, obviously you knew that the project was going to be, you know, this dark Mysterio. So Batman, you know, they're going to go back to the roots of the character. You're going to kind of skip through, you know, what happened in the sixties, but when Keaton was casted, you were like, I don't know. What about Alec Baldwin? What about this guy? Or was when when Keaton was cast, like, no, I, he's so out of left field. It actually makes sense because Bruce Wayne and Batman are like the characters so out there. Well, it's you know, it's the the thing. The thing I thought, uh, truthfully, I, I, you know, I had a moment. I went like Michael Keaton, <laughs> but then you know, I had. I had also seen, and I knew that Tim was a big fan of Clean and Sober, um, which is a, a movie that he was in where he gave a, you know, a great uh, dramatic performance. And, you know, the more I started thinking about it, you know, this is the, the key thing is um, you cast Bruce Wayne. You know, you don't cast Batman because Batman is mostly going to be 
a stunt guy running around in a suit or, you know, most of most of what the actor does is going to be partly concealed by a mask. The guy you want to really establish your audience sympathy for is the secret identity. You know, you want the human to make the impression before the mask character. Uh, you, you, you don't have you don't have you don't have the same kind of sympathy or empathy for, you know, the guy in the suit and the cape unless you know the character who's wearing them. And, you know, that's where I, I thought he was, uh, he was a great, uh, he was a great guy to cast. And also because, you know, he's not a traditional action guy. Um, that to me, that to me made it more interesting. You know, the studio at one point was trying to, one of the names that they, one of the names that they floated to, uh, to Tim, you guys will be thrilled to hear this. I'm, I know was a, uh, a, a new action star who was just kind of working his way up through the, the Warner brother ranks at that time called Steven Seagal. Really? And so, yeah, it's gonna, yeah. Imagine, imagine, uh, uh, Batman with Steven Seagal. Um, it's, it could have been, could have been a good movie, but it would have been a very, very different movie. Yes, that would have been like I'm trying to picture Steven Seagal in the Tim Burton and Tom First production design Batman, and I'm not seeing it. Like it'd be much different. I don't know how I feel about Steven Seagal as Batman because I can only ever see Michael Keaton in you know in you know your guys's world that you you created. So that's interesting, Steven Seagal. Huh? Because I heard the Bill Murray at one point, they kind of were interested in him, Bill Murray as Batman, and I can't remember who was going to oh, be yeah, Robin. Before we came on the picture, you know, they, they spent, they had the property kicking around for seven or eight years. They had, they were going to do a period Art Deco Batman. They were going to do a comedy Batman with Bill Murray and Eddie Murphy as Robin. Uh, that's probably who you were trying to yeah. remember, which is, I guess, the, you know, the, the Saturday Night Live alumni version of. Of, of Batman, but uh, yeah, you know, and you know, we just we just came and said, what if you, what if you just did, you know, plain old Batman, you know, like you like you used to be in the comics back in the day, and that struck <laughs> everybody as this kind of you know radical new approach. I never would have thought of that. So throughout the whole process of getting the, the scripts all together, how hands on was Tim Burton with the the whole process of that? Oh, we were working very closely together. I mean, we. Um, you know, we would talk about stuff at great length and I would write a bunch of pages and I would give him the pages and he would come back with ideas for the pages. And, you know, we would get stuck on plot points occasionally. We had a there's a, <laughs> a story that I've told, you know, many, many times. So I apologize if I'm boring you guys with stuff you've heard already. Oh, but, no, no. Please tell us, please. Yeah, the, the studio, for one thing, insisted that we have Robin. Mm-hmm. And we had we basically had the whole plot worked out and we had somehow kind of I don't know how this happened. We accidentally kind of forgot to include Robin, <laughs> um, you know, uh, <laughs> the studio was the studio was very, very explicit. You two seem to have forgotten Robin. And we were saying, yeah, I wonder what we meant by that. And they said, well, we want Robin in here because everybody knows you know, there's no such thing as Batman. There's only Batman and Robin. And so we would say, like, well, you know, couldn't we leave that for the sequel when, you know, two other boneheads are, are responsible for this property? And they would say, no, people expect to see Robin. And so we had, you know, we had our story pretty much worked out. 
Tim would call me up and he'd say, you got anything yet? And I'd say, no, I really don't. And he'd say, I'd say, you got anything? He said, no, I don't, I don't have anything either. And so he flew up to San Francisco to my house one weekend. And we basically just walked around on the carpet in circles and said, well, you know, maybe Robin could, well, no, that stinks. You know, like what if he was, and and we, you know, would come up with, we'd spitball 14 or 15 different scenarios in which we could somehow shoehorn Robin into the picture. And we decided after about two days of doing this, number one, we'd worn a hole in my carpet, uh, Number two, we, we just we couldn't come up with anything good. And we said, OK, you know, first thing tomorrow we have to call, you know, it's going to be Sunday morning. I think we're going to call the studio brass. We're going to say, please, you know, we threw ourselves on your mercy. We can't come up with a good way to get Robin into the picture. And we started, you know, to make the call. And we thought, no, 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 maybe we should just take, you know, 10 more minutes. Let's let's try one more time. And we started walking around in a circle again. And I said, what if? And Tim said, yeah, you know, you could. And then I said, oh, yeah. And on top of that, you could. And so just with our backs totally to the wall, we came up with a pretty good sequence, self-contained sequence to get Robin into the movie. It kind of it kind of worked in the flow of the picture. It gave us a big action scene where we needed a big action scene. Um, it's and it, it you know, it it tied in luckily to some of the stuff that we'd already planted in the movie, you know, we, we already knew we wanted to do it as a sort of, you know, Gotham uh, bicentennial or, or tricentennial or whatever the, the gag of the picture was. And, you know, so we had, um, we came up with this sequence where the Joker is escaping after he um, comes to Vicky's apartment and uh, Batman goes off in pursuit of him and he, his van as he's being chased by Batman uh, goes through Gotham Park, and one of the uh, bicentennial events that they're staging there is an acrobat show. They've got you know wire walkers and trapeze artists who are you know, setting up their stuff for a you know a nighttime fireworks show. And the Joker rams into this piling and knocks two performers off uh, a, a wire. They're you know they're high wire walkers, and they fall to their deaths. And these are, of course, the Flying Graysons. Mm-hmm. And so as the Joker is making his escape through the park, all of a sudden this kid begins jumping from tree to tree and swinging on branches and lands on the roof of the Joker's van. And the Joker starts firing through the roof of the van, and the kid is trying to tear his way in because he's going to strangle the Joker with his bare hands. And this, as Batman finally catches up with the Joker, is the kid that we know is going to be Robin. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we were, we were we were very happy with this, and the studio liked it. They thought it was terrific and so forth and so on. And then the picture got underway, and they're over, they're over in London. Uh, they have gone considerably over the budget that the studio wanted to spend. And so they start looking for something. What can we, what can we pull out of here? What is it? There's got to be some kind of big action sequence we can take out of the picture and save a little money. And so what they cut was... Robin. Robin. <laughs> yeah, right. So our, our our suffering, all our suffering was for nothing. Um, we they made us they made us stick Robin in the picture, and then they made us cut Robin out of the picture. <laughs> so when you were writing the character of Robin, you said he was young. He was a young dick. So you didn't want to do like a teenage or like a twenty year old Robin. It was your version of Robin was always going to be the younger version of him. 
Well, he wasn't going to be he wasn't going to be like, you know, 10 years old because mm-hmm. it's that's that's one of the that's one of the the places where <laughs> the comic book really is kind of unavoidably silly mm-hmm. because you know, if you're taking a 10-year-old uh, or 12-year-old out into battle with you to fight crime, I mean, you know, please. That's 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 child abuse. You can't do that. That's it's <laughs> It's it's probably it's it's probably a violation of the child labor laws too. You know, I don't know how much he pays Robin. I don't know what Robin's regular salary is, but I don't think you can. You know, and look at the hours he makes the kid work. I mean, is he paying him overtime? I and mean, what's the deal? Um, and, He's got to pay him insurance, right? There has to be some sort of insurance involved. He's going to go out every night fighting crime. Exactly. Like yeah. imagine imagine how much the workman's comp is going to cost on that. <laughs> And, you know, the, the, you know, the, the horrible thing is, you know, that Bruce Wayne being a millionaire is, is probably so tight fisted that he has the kid hired as an, as an independent contractor or something like that. So he doesn't, have to, doesn't have to pay him benefits. Oh. Like, because, you know, millionaires are cheap. Let's face it. That's how they get to be millionaires. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but. You know, we were going to have, we were going to have, he was probably, he, I, I imagine he was probably like, you know, 16 is, is probably what we were thinking. So he was, you know, uh, going to be a, a, at least uh, post-pubescent, let's put it that way. Right, because I remember better, when better, the, better Better optics, if you know what I mean. Right, right. I remember seeing that sequence that, there was like a storyboard sequence that was put into like the 2005 DVD Blu-ray version of the of you know the extras that they put on the the Batman, and I was always curious when you were originally writing the character if he was you know young ten year old Robin or you know how they went in the later you know movies. This is kind of like it felt like in his twenties. So I was always curious where you saw the character of Robin as the age. So um, now you you had said that the that the ending you know obviously when you take when you have robin in this you know an idea for robin and you have to take him out that changed you know the ending of the film can you talk about you know what had you know how the the final version of the film you know did was batman and the batman going up to the belfry was that always in your original script or did that change or you know because you know I've always, you know, I've, you know, I'm a huge Batman fan, so I've listened to Tim's, you know, commentary more than a few times, where he says, you know, Jack went turned to him and says, "Why am I going up to the, you know, why am I going up this bell tower?" And you know, Tim turns to him and says, "Well, when we, you know, we're still writing. When you get to the top, I'll have an answer for you." Was was that kind of always there, or did the, you know, did the script change dramatically because of the writer strike or the ending or whatever? The I'll tell you the ending the main the main addition to the ending is that you know Vicky is up in the belfry. Um, mm-hmm. The I, I wrote when I started when I started writing the script. Um, the first thing I wrote was the opening scene with the tourist couple who you and you the, the idea is you're supposed to see it and think you're seeing the origin of Batman. You know, mm-hmm. here's this couple and they've got a young kid and they're. You know, they get they get held up at gunpoint and doesn't go the way you're expecting it to because you're expecting to see, you know, here this is this is little Bruce Wayne. It's not the Waynes at all. As these guys go up on a roof and they start counting their counting their take and who shows up and, you know, fucks them up. But Batman. Oh, there he is. 
And um, the, um, the end of the movie was the next scene I wrote. I wrote, I, you know, it's, it's Batman. And so I thought, you know, okay, where do you want to have your, where do you want to have your climactic action sequence? Uh, you want to have it where there are bats and, you know, where do you have bats? You have bats in a belfry and where do you have a belfry? You have Gotham cathedral. And I actually had a bit where in the first scene of the movie, and this, this, this does not, does not wind up making it into the movie, but it did, however, make it into the opening of daredevil, um, where you see a bunch of gargoyles sitting on the ledges, on the cornices of Gotham Cathedral. And as the camera goes past the gargoyles, one of them moves. And that's Batman. That's the, that's the, first, the first time you see Batman. He's like this shadowy, scary-looking thing uh, sitting up here staring down, at the, staring down at the streets. And so the final scene was going to come back to Gotham Cathedral. And this, the, reason he, the reason he goes up into the Belfry is, is very simple. He's been trying to get away after the whole parade mess has gone crazy. He's trying to get away from trying to get away from Batman, who was hot on his tail. And he goes up to the Belfry to be fetched by a helicopter. And, you know, uh, it's it's just the it's it's the quickest way out. You know, he's got his that's mm -hmm. that's his escape plan. You know, he goes he goes he goes up the tower out the belfry, everything's, everything's good. And the big, uh, effects moment that got lost because Warners didn't want to, you know, <laughs> shell out the effects dough is that he basically has got Batman beat. Um, and, uh, as the helicopter descends, you know, there's a little ladder that he's, he's about to jump onto and the rotor blades, the backwash of the, the helicopter coming down rouses this cloud of hundreds of bats who come out of the belfry and swarm him and swarm the helicopter and he falls to his death, you know, the same way that he does he does in the movie. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he 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 falls to his death because he gets uh, attacked by Batman's iconic animal, you know. And um didn't work out that way, but you know, that certainly these things happen. That certainly would have been an interesting way to go about that. I think that's definitely more cinematic and climactic, not me for my taste in the way. So um, there, there's a lot of different aspects that go into writing a script. Uh, in your opinion, what's what's more challenging to, to write for? At least in uh, the case of Batman here, did you have more trouble? developing the action sequences or the, the, the moments of drama where it was more character based. Yeah. I, I like, I like doing both. Um, I, I sort of, I sort of approached it character wise. I sort of approached it as a really deadpan comedy. You know, I wanted to do it sort of in the spirit of a, you know, wise cracking, uh, 1940s newspaper comedy, almost in, in, in a lot of in a lot of ways. Um, it, it, you know, it pulls. It pull, I, mean, I, was, I swipe stuff from from all over. You know, there's there's stuff from different genres. There's stuff from screwball comedies. There's stuff from obviously Warner Brothers gangster pictures. You know, there's there's all all of that kind of stuff is is in the movie somewhere. 
But I really, I had been writing primarily comedy stuff before I wrote Batman. I'd never done, I'd never done an action movie before. And so I wrote, I wrote very detailed action. You know, I tried to, you know, get, I thought, where am I going to set this? And I tried to, you know, get photographs of the kind of places of, you know, like, what do you, what kind of, what kind of props do you have to work with if you're in a chemical factory? You know, what, what would a, uh, okay, if you had a, a really kind of cool modern museum like the Guggenheim or something like that, what, what, what does the interior look like and how could you set up an action scene there? And so I, I wrote very, very detailed action scene scenes. And <laughs> it turned out apparently I'd been doing it wrong because I went to, I got the, got the script back from Warner brothers and I got it back from Tim and they're going like, man, these, these action sequences, they've got, it's got all the beats. It's got like all the stuff there where, you know, who hits who and who hits who and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, most people just write, they have a big fight. <laughs> and I thought, good. I thought, good God, I could have got this thing in a month sooner if I'd known all I had to write was they have a big fight. <laughs> well, that's, that's one of those things like, you know, the Indians come over the hill in, in the Western screenplay that turns out to be like five minutes of screen time, one sentence on the page. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. Um, So I want to ask about... I've read somewhere, I can't remember, it might have been from an interview past that you did, um, where you said you have this ingenious way to bring in the bat signal at the end of the film that never ended up in the uh, in the final version of the film. What was this, what was your way that you wanted to bring that iconic moment into, you know, your your screenplay into the final film? Oh, it was, it was actually, it was actually a cool bit. You know, the, the minor character of, uh, Alex Knox, who is played by Robert Wall. Um, he, and he's, you know, he sort of, uh, perceives himself as Bruce's rival for the affections of Vicki Vale, although she doesn't really have any interest in him at all. Um, he actually is the one who discovers as, you know, all the stuff with the, um, uh, parade is unfolding down below. Uh, he's the one that discovers that the balloons are filled with deadly gas. Mm. And um, he has he has no way of getting this information to Batman because Batman has been, you know, blowing up the factory. And now he's, you know, Batman is uh, soaring overhead in his bat wing. And, uh, you know, how do you how do you tell him, you know, how do you tell him that the, the problem is is the balloons? And uh, there are all these sort of Klieg lights that are set up up and down the street for the parade that's going on. And he looks over and he sees a costume shop. And it's, you know, and they've, they've got their Halloween display up. And in the glass window of the costume shop, you've got, you know, various Halloween things. And you've got a Joker and you've got a Batman because, you know, these are like the two characters who are suddenly in the in the papers all the time mm -hmm. and he throws a garbage can through the window and he rips the cape off the batman goes over to one of the klieg lights throws the cape on top of the klieg light and then fires it up tilts it up at the underside of a balloon Ooh. and you you cut to batman in the cockpit 
and he's looking and he's squinting and he doesn't quite know what he's seeing. And then you see there's this giant bat signal on the underside of the balloon and he gets it. And, you know, that's that's where the bat signal came from uh, in, in, in my version of the script. Wow, that that's amazing. Like, I'm not just saying that. Like, I like that. That's that's awesome. Very unique. Uh, well, thank you, gents. <laughs> that, that like, I I think I like that idea. Like, wow. Like, I've never thought. Like, never thought of like that. That's like an iconic take on you know that that like somebody needs to like put that in like a comic or something now. Like, <laughs> what? <the>? Right. <laughs> so you're 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 already retconning. Yeah. <laughs> It's all headcanon now. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's been it's been a few years since the movies come out. You know, the dust has settled and all that. Looking back on it now, is there a particular moment from that movie that stands out as your favorite? Oh man, you know, I, I, I it's it's hard to say. I mean, I haven't seen it in so long. You know, I. I uh, haven't I haven't gotten the urge to watch it for the last few years, but I just you know I just remember being really, I remember being really pleased with uh, with Keaton's performance. Um, I I love I love the look of the movie. You know I think the late Anton First uh, did such a did such a great did such a great job uh, with it, and it's you know it's 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 weird now because. The movie has a very analog feel to it compared to the later Batman stuff. You know, once once uh, uh, Christopher Nolan came in, they got to go much darker than we ever would have. Mm -hmm. You know, they they got to be much more sort of you know serious and and, and black and big budget and, and and all of that kind of stuff. And so you know, our our movie seems kind of our movie seems kind of small and creaky. But you know, I I just like I I like the the way the I like the way the world is built in it um and again you know i i, I really really like like keaton and there are uh, you know umpty nine million jack nicholson moments i could point to i mean the thing the thing that i think is the thing that i think is is fun about nicholson's performance what i thought the last time i was watching it is like you know this the way he's playing it is has he's he's a he's like a comedian or a vaudevillian who has complete contempt for his audience and the only thing he's doing up on stage is trying to keep himself amused and i just i just thought that's actually such a such a great take on this this character you know because you know when he, he comes out he's gonna he's gonna kill the crowd but he's really gonna kill the crowd you know so it's um it's just yeah there there are a lot of things to like you know there, there are a lot of a lot of things that make me that make me groan too that i wish you know i could have gone back and fixed but you know, that's the way it always is. So I have one last question for you. And then I, I don't know if Kyle has anything left. You created the character Henry Ducard, if I'm not mistaken. Is that that's correct, right? That is correct. Yes. Dennis so, Cowan and I in the, the comic that we did for uh, the 50th anniversary of Batman. So when you see Ducard, you know, kind of, like I know that the Batman Begins version of Ducard is, you know, slightly different but when you were creating that character of Ducard what were you trying to bring to what were you why I guess 
why were you trying to bring that character into Batman's world, and what were, what kind of uh, characterizations were you trying to really push into that? Um, Ducard Ducard was supposed to be, I I guess, kind of Ducard was supposed to be where Batman goes if Batman goes wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was, I was doing a story. I tried to work out with Denny O'Neill and the editors at, at DC comics. Um, what this special, you know, three issue 50th anniversary story should be. And, um, you know, I just, I just started asking questions about, you know, what, what, what do we, what do we have missing from the Batman continuity? And um, it turned out as we were talking about it, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff about what happened between the time when um, Bruce was a kid when he was orphaned and the time when he became Batman. And so that seemed to me a very, you know, fertile area uh, to explore. And I just um, started trying to come up with a plot where uh, contemporary events would throw a focus on all of this stuff from Bruce's past you know, which uh, became a part of um, you know, all, all of the elements that, that came together to turn him to turn him into Batman. And I wanted to have uh, one of the people who sort of trained him come into the picture, uh, realize immediately like, boom, oh, yeah, I know this guy's M.O. This is uh, this is this uh, this is this kid. That I that used to uh, uh, come and uh, come and bug me and wanted to wanted to learn from me and all of this kind of stuff like that. And I could always I could always see that he wasn't quite right, you know. And so I got to do this character as a sort of commentary uh, on all the stuff that's really kind of you know wrong with Batman. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he 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 thinks that uh, you know it's it, very obviously. Bruce is wasting his time trying to deal with petty criminals and nuts in costumes and, you know, all of this kind of stuff like that, because it completely ignores all the bigger stuff that's, you know, that's, that's wrong in the world that's going on right under his nose. And that's part of the story, too, because, you know, he finds out that his company has basically been uh, hollowed out by, by, uh, by bad guys who were uh, involved in uh, sinister scientific research. Um, but yeah, I just, he was just, uh, he was, he was really kind of a, he was really kind of a device for me. He was like the, he was like the ruthless sociopathic version of Bruce. And, uh, you know, the sort of, the sort of, the sort of cautionary tale. He was, he was what Bruce saw that Bruce had to be careful not to turn into. And um, if that answers your question, I don't, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, that 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 answers the question because, like, he's such a, Henry Ducard is such an interesting character because he he kind of plays that almost mentor trainer. I wouldn't say like like the only way to really describe you know when I read you know read Ducard in the comics you know and I'm seeing him you know you know on the big screen and Batman Begins he's kind of like this evil Yoda. Kind of like that's the only way to really describe like this ri- like he, like Yoda is gone. He's like train you, I must, but you know do this other sort of thing. So, but you know, you know, Ducard, you know, plays such a, you know, impact, you know, plays such an impact in Bruce's life, 
and you know you know until you said that you know he it's you know if bruce gone wrong you know i never would have pieced those two together but now that you said it i was like oh that's you know it makes you know makes much more sense for me you know as a avid fan of the comics and you know you know you know what Liam Neeson does with him in the role in Batman Begins is is you know kind of like I was like I'm gonna go watch that tonight and you know see how that you know that cautionary tale plays out. Well, you know, it, cra- it, cracked really, really... Seeing, it cracked me up seeing Batman Begins. You know, I told I told Denny O'Neill it, t- it it turns out in Batman Begins that that <laughs> Ra's al Ghul is basically the sort of you know front character that Ducard has concocted, and the uh-huh. reason. The reason that he keeps he appears to keep regenerating himself, you know, he takes he takes a dip in the old uh, pool of youth and comes back as a whole new guy is because Ducard keeps bringing in new guys to play Ra's al Ghul. <laughs> and I, I called Denny O'Neill up and I said, you know, holy shit, it turns out that my villains, my villain is your villain's secret identity. <laughs> so who knew? It came full circle there. <laughs> Well, all right, then it turns out that it turns out somehow in the Dark Knight Rises that he actually is Ross Al Ghul. So it turned out that Ross Al Ghul was Henry Ducard, who <laughs> pretended to be Ross Al Ghul. Go figure. Oh, it's a crazy world we live in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. Uh, all right, so I got I got one more question for you here. Um, would you say there is a particular challenge when it comes to tackling a comic book movie script as opposed to maybe a more traditional movie? Boy, you know, it's, it's hard to say. It's a, it's a different, it's a different world now, you know, um, it's basically when Tim and I started doing this picture, you know, there was no, there wasn't a great body of work, you know, of, of comic book adaptations. There were basically the three Superman movies. And uh, that was it. And so, uh, you know, and they they became kind of sillier as as they went along. I I, I like the second one. I think the second one is is the best of the three. But um, you know, the the third one is kind of a goof, and the fourth one is just you know tedious. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, we were we were trying we were trying to we had a, we had a, a a big issue about how do you make this play for an adult audience. You know, how do you make a guy putting on a costume and going out and fighting supervillains and so forth and so on? How do you make adults want to come see that? And that was an issue for us. And it was it was kind of it was a a, a legitimate question to ask back then. Now the world is so super saturated in comic book culture that, you know, I think you can you can see um in a movie like Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, which I love, by the way, I think it's, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the graphics are so beautiful and so innovative and so consistently ingenious. Uh, but, but you, I mean, just imagine how much plot room those guys have to work with. You know, if we had come into Warner brothers in 1989 and said, Oh, we want to do this thing where characters from multiple universes come together and, you know, the, the portals portals get opened up and they get switched into the wrong universe and they have to go back to their own universe and they're all different iterations of the same of the same character. You know, they would have uh, thrown us out of the room before we got halfway into the first sentence. And now you've got an enormous mass audience of people 
um, who are perfectly willing to roll with the conventions of comic books and the complications of comic books and who can keep, you know, who have demonstrated they can kind of keep all the crazy plot strands straight. And so I, I think, you know, there's, there's no longer, there's no longer the same kind of translation issue uh, that there was back in the day for us. Yeah, it's it's interesting to see how, you know, you'd go like three or four years in between. I mean, you know, back then you go a couple years before you'd have, you know, you'd have Superman, then Batman. Then like, I think Blade came out nine, when I can't remember when Blade yeah. came out. Then the X-Men and now just like, we're getting, we get, went from, we went from like one every couple years to now it's like one every couple months. <laughs> and that, that's not even the, you know, the animated version. Cause I, you know, the Incredibles, though, to me, those are superhero movies too. Just sure. the Pixar yep. version of them. So um, it's just, it's interesting to see, you know, how, you know, Superman, you know, laid the groundwork and then Batman kind of, blew the whole thing out of the water of what you could do with a serious take on the character. And I agree with you about Superman. The The second one is definitely better, but the Richard, to me, the Donner cut is still, you know, that's still my favorite version of, you know, any superhero movie for sure. So I don't know if you've ever been able, if you ever caught the Donner cut of that one that came out a couple of years ago. I, I I actually have it. I'm ashamed to say I have it in a box and I haven't watched it. Oh my god, it's to, to so my, good! My great shame, but you know, it, on your on your tip, on your tip, I'm gonna I'm gonna fire up the old DVD player. It's so good. I I really want. There's this one scene that I really want to spoil because uh, they they didn't shoot they didn't shoot the scene and they and it's actually like a, a test uh, a screen test with. Uh, with uh, Christopher Reeve, so you'll see like a different, like a change, but it's so good. It's like, man, why didn't they throw this in the movie? This movie, this is like the whole reason, you know, this plays into the look. It just, I'm like, man, nowadays you could do that, but back then it's like, man, like it's right there. You're just almost there, and you just, just walk through the door. It's opening <laughs> for you. So, but yes, their Donner Cup is definitely. For me, you know, sometimes to... sometimes studios just have a nose for the most interesting stuff, and they go right to it and cut it out. You know, <laughs> and it's, they, they they find that they find that organic stuff, they clean it out, and they make the product more generic. And but you know, sometimes sometimes they let you get away with stuff when they're not looking. So, mm -hmm. but yeah, so I for one, I want to thank you for coming on. It's been like a, such a huge like. When you said, sure, why not? I was like, oh, my God. I was, it was like 11 <laughs> o'clock at night. I'm like jumping up and down. I'm messaging Kyle. I was like, yes. Like, like I shameful to say I fangirled, even though, you know, like I definitely <laughs> – when you said you'd come on. So it's definitely been like for me. Well, you guys, you guys like, are, are total goofballs. Thank you so much for having me on. It was it, it's a great it's a great pleasure for me. I mean, I get to I get to sit here and gas on for you know forty five minutes about you know about, about Batman. I'm I'm thrilled to have the opportunity. You know, and I, and I would have been if I hadn't been doing this, I would have been walking my dog. So right, <laughs> my do, my dog is a little pissed off at you, but well, he'll get over it. <laughs> 